Hey, everybody. I've got a little bit of housekeeping here before we get into the episode about Instagram and Theology Beer Camp. So I've been getting more active on Instagram, and I just want to let you guys know, in case you want to see me make some videos where I look directly into the camera, I'm sharing some stories and posts about basically all the topics that we cover on this show over at Instagram.com slash Dan Coke. That's C-O-K-E, and the link is in the show notes. Also, Theology Beer Camp is returning in 2024, October 17th through 19th. The theme is Return of the God Pods. That is a Lord of the Rings reference, which should surprise nobody. I will be there alongside Brian McLaren, Diana Butler-Bass, the New Evangelicals, Bible for Normal People, Tony and Josh from GGCH, of course, Trip Fuller and Homebrewed Christianity, and a whole grip of others. And you can use the promo code RETURNOFYHP, all one word, for $25 off your ticket. Prices go up starting June 1st. That link will be in the notes. I hope to see a bunch of you guys there in October. It was a serious highlight of last year for me. My name is Dan Koch. Like many of you, I've been on a complicated faith journey for a number of years now. And while I tend to find myself on the progressive side of Christianity, my goal is not to make liberal converts. I want this show to be a resource for Christians to my right and to my left, as well as former Christians and non-religious folks, anyone who finds themselves asking difficult questions about God, science, prayer, fate, suffering, evangelism, and more. So many of us have been given bad answers to those good questions, often by people with pure intentions. I want to say that you have permission to take both Christianity and the modern world very seriously. And I hope to facilitate that by introducing you to people seeking God across the Christian spectrum, engaging hard questions in a multitude of ways. Thanks for listening. So a couple months ago, I did this episode uh, about the film Faith-Based, and we talked a lot about the Christian movie industry, which uh, you know is a, a fairly new phenomenon in, in the way it exists today. And in that conversation, I realized that I was actually pretty interested in Christian music. There are a lot of angles I'm interested in, uh, the least of which is the one you hear anytime one of these Christian artists or former former CCM artists uh, are interviewed, which is like, oh, that, you know, Christian music is bad and general market music is good. And there's a lot of truth to that there. Um, I'm, I'm still interested in the mechanisms for that. Like, why are the quality thresholds different? But there's a lot else that I'm interested in. By the way, CCM stands for Contemporary Christian Music, for those of you who didn't grow up steeped. Uh, in that stuff. Um, anyway, uh, the the effects on people's faith, uh, it, it ties in, I think, to what we're seeing in the last uh, five years, especially with prominent evangelicals and politics. So it's just a lot of angles there. Um, and uh, another reason that I'm interested in talking about this topic is that even though I know I've been teased once or twice by listeners to this show about how often I mention my years playing in the band Sherwood, uh, it rarely makes sense for me to say more than one or two sentences about that, um, you know, because of the topic, whatever we're talking about at the time. It might be about, you know, habits or it might be about uh, certain kinds of conversations we would have. But that is actually how I basically spent my entire 20s, became an adult, met my wife and some of my best friends. And it was just a massive, massive part of my life. And probably it gives context for both my own faith journey and the kind of topics I find myself drawn to making this show, uh, I would assume, in ways I don't even understand yet. And so this is going to be a, a series, uh, this Christian music in air quotes. Um, and it's just going to be with musicians who have had some involvement uh, with some form of quote, Christian music. I've already recorded the second installment. It's with Joy Williams, 
one half of the Civil Wars and also former CCM artist herself. Uh, but today's interview is with John Van Dusen. Little less of a household name uh, than the Civil Wars, but John is incredible. Uh, he was in a band around the same time as Sherwood kind of overlapping called The Lonely Forest from the Seattle area. And they did pretty well. They had some radio success and yeah, he, they had a career. That band ended and he has been putting out solo records and he has made three records uh, in the last, I don't know, four years or so that have come out. At the time of our recording, I hadn't spent much time with his second album. That is the more straightforwardly faith-based. It's it's a worship record in a lot of ways. I haven't since spent time with it, and I can now report it is as good as the first and the third of these of these three solo records, uh, the fourth of which he's working on now. Uh, if I had to put John against all other bands and recording artists that I listen to. So we're talking Arcade Fire, Bon Iver, uh, Sufjan. L put them in the mix with everybody. If I were to grade three most recent albums, cumulative score, I think John's in my top five of any artist, uh, may maybe even high up on that list. All three records are so good. They have grown on me more and more and more with each listen. I just love them. But also, John, and, and the records kind of show this, as well as my some of my fairly brief in-person interactions with him. We have some mutual friends like uh, like Tyson Matzenbacher, the recording artist. Uh, John is a real, a person of very sincere faith. Uh, he, he really, um, he has a, a day job at a church up in Anacortes, Washington, uh, as their worship director. He really... I don't know how to describe it. I guess it'll come out in the conversation, but I've been surprised by him in a, in many different ways. Um, and mo most of that pleasantly surprised. He's got a real punk rock edge to him and a real sincere faith. I apologize for the shortness of this interview. We normally go longer on this show. At the time I was thinking I would pair his with another shorter interview, but as I've gotten into these things, uh, I've realized that they just need to be their own episodes because there are too many conversational tendrils. I can't imagine having only done uh, 45 minutes or so with Joy Williams, for instance. So John gets his own shorter episode. I hope you enjoy it. And I really hope you will listen to his albums uh, as you, uh, after you, after you hear this, I hope that it'll make you interested in them because I just love them. All right. Enough blabbering into my conversation with John Van Dusen. John Van Dusen, I am very pumped to have this conversation with you because I am low-key in love with two of your last three records. <laughs> and we'll we'll get to there, – there's quite a difference between those two and the third one, which I'm sure we'll talk about. I'm, mm -hmm. not, I'm not knocking the, the middle record. I'm just saying mm -hmm. the two that are non-sort of praise records that are pop rock records – Mm -hmm. uh, I think are both fantastic. They have, they would each, if I made an albums of the year list, they would each have definitely been on my top five, top 10 albums of those years. I've Thank been you. listening to your most recent one just very regularly. And I wanted to talk to you because you are like very clearly a person of faith. In fact, making 
ex- sometimes explicitly Christian music, and then other times not really explicitly Christian music. Yeah, you, you got to kind of look for it if you if you know what you're looking for, you can tell it's there. Mm-hmm. Uh, so you're an interesting figure in in this world, and I think an increasingly rare breed. So thanks for being here, man. I appreciate it. <laughs> you're welcome. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Thanks for saying all of those nice things. Uh, I I was first aware of you when you were the singer and songwriter of The Lonely Forest. Uh, yes. But I wasn't like super aware of that band. I knew about you guys. I I must have had a digital version of your Arrows record, which was the, the major label release. And I knew that you were played on like some rock radio stuff. You had a pretty good, pretty successful run there for a bunch of young guys from Anacortes, Washington. That ended, and you decided at some point to start this solo career. Maybe just tell us a little bit about that transition. Well, wow. The Lonely Forest, we we played our last show in 2014. And, you know, the band ended for a whole myriad of reasons. But the main one in my life was because touring in that band and kind of giving all of myself to that band wasn't very conducive to marriage and I think I just needed a change and my life was changing in general who I was as a person was changing and I just think it felt it felt like the right time to move on and so we played our last show and then my wife and I we took a, a kind of like a nine-month trip away from the U.S. and while I was gone I was I remember the moment I was on a train in Beijing And I was looking at my iPod, which had 60 or 70 demos that I had songs I'd written for The Lonely Forest that for whatever reason were never recorded or were never used. And I just had this huge desire to at least try to release them in some way. And that's basically how my solo career, if that's what you want to call it, started. And kind of pieced it all together really slowly. You know, I came home from that trip and I got a normal job and just basically when I had the time started working on that first record, the universal sigh. And that's kind of where it started. Yeah. Awesome. So we chatted a little bit before this conversation. And so a couple of these early questions are going to sound like very weird early questions to ask somebody, but I'm asking them because I kind of know where we're going. Right. Uh, you talked about, you know, the lonely forest not being conducive to marriage and something that you and I chatted about earlier as well is just sort of like the difference for you being healthy and rooted holistically, as you put it, and, and not being that way. And so I guess I'm wondering, can you describe what it looks like for you as either a person or an artist when you are not healthy, when you are not rooted and and your art is not coming from that sort of like solid place. <laughs> yeah, I can try. I, I I think that as an artist, if I, if I'm not healthy on a holistic level, as as we've been saying, I tend to be more selfish with my ambition. And maybe ambition in general just feels selfish to me, at least in in the context of my own life. I'm pretty OCD, and so I begin to obsess over my projects in a way that's really unhealthy and I'm also ADD. And so I can hyper-focus on something. And so when I'm not doing well, basically I hyper-focus on my art and I see my art as the vehicle that's going to make me happy. And I tend to also struggle with anxiety and depression. So I'm kind of like this weird cocktail of mental health issues. And if I'm not healthy, all of those things just impact what I do as an artist and then also obviously my marriage and my relationships. So it's kind of hard to explain, but I think I'm a little bit more manic and I'm a little bit more likely to make bad decisions in order to get myself where I think I need to be. But when I'm not healthy, where I think I need to be is it's usually kind of a grass is greener mentality of like feeling like, there's this pie in the sky place as an artist where everybody's going to be listening and paying attention. And that's kind of my motivator. Does that make sense? Uh, (laughs) 
Does it ever, John? Uh, <laughs> I have an anxiety disorder myself, and I was the primary songwriter for an emo pop band for 10 years. Right. And uh, I remember, for instance, laying in my bunk on tour, like when we were working on our second record, just like fantasizing about when the guys in Reliant K heard this record and what they would say to me and how that would make my life complete or whatever. <laughs> and you know, what's funny about that is I think they liked it fine and I'm still friends with them. Like I actually got real friendship with those guys and not this kind of like, oh, we are the the um, bell of the ball for a few months or something while our record is new. You know, we never got that. We never were the bells of the ball. We never had radio play. We didn't have any of those moments of intense sort of national attention and praise. Uh, mm. We never got that. And I'm, I'm kind of glad we never got it because, frankly, I don't think it would have been satisfying. It probably would have made me even more messed up. But so mm -hmm. I very, very much relate to what you're talking about. Yeah, that like this imagined future of, oh, wait till they hear this. Right. Uh, and placing so much in that basket, right? Yeah, absolutely. That's, I mean, I can, I can also remember times in which I was imagining what others would think of what I was creating. Totally. And that, that was very important to me. I still do it a little bit, but it's funny. Now I'm more interested in making people uncomfortable. Like I set my sights on like the people who are not going to like it. And I think they're going to hate this, but I'm like saying it in some weird, like sadistic twisted. Uh huh. Yeah. Way like, oh, uh, they're going to hate it. But, I, but I'm kind of excited about that. <laughs> so this actually um, <laughs> not where I was intending to go uh, <laughs> in this conversation, but it's I'm really interested in this because so when I was working on this podcast, so two years ago, maybe in its formation stages uh, and as I've thought about other projects, creative projects, I got into this book called Ego is the Enemy by Ryan Holiday. And it's basically like it's like Stoic philosophy and kind of basic old school kind of Greek wisdom tradition stuff mixed with real life stories of successful people. And the idea being that, like, if you're focused on the outcome, the reception to the thing, you will never do your best work. Mm. Uh, and in fact, in order to be to have any kind of fulfillment long term, it can't be about the reaction. Right. So. If you want to be famous, then you will burn out even if you become famous. If you want to just like if you just love painting and the goal of your painting career is to be able to continue to paint, mm -hmm. well, then you're actually quite likely to succeed at that goal and you'll make better paintings and you'll focus on the main thing, which is the act of creation, which is right. the whole purpose of trying to make money is just to keep doing the thing. So like. If you're a football, he talks about Bill Walsh with the 49ers in the 80s and 90s. Like if you like he was just focused on perfecting his offense and they lost a bunch and he did. That wasn't the point. Right. And then he ends up being one of the greatest coaches of all time. But he had he wrote about it. He wrote diaries and, you know, autobiographical stuff. And people interviewed him and you can tell that he was just focused like the the work is the reward is the phrase from that book that I like so much. So cool. if this podcast succeeds, what's the reward? It's that I get to keep making it. And if that's right. not a good enough reward, I should not make the podcast. Hmm. You know what I mean? It, yeah. That, so that's kind of similar. That reminds me of that. Yeah. I think there's something kind of puckish within me that kind of desires to instigate and disrupt people. Sure. Coming back to your question about being unhealthy. I think when I'm unhealthy, that desire takes over, which is interesting because it's just as bad as wanting to make art that makes people blissfully happy. And not that that's a bad thing. What I mean is it's it's just as bad as making art for that person whom you want their approval. It's just as bad to make art that's specifically trying to um, disrupt a certain type of person. So yeah. it's interesting because – I do think the best work I, I make is just when I'm I'm just kind of having fun. That sounds so trite, but it's true. Yeah. Yeah. Where the work is its own reward, basically. Yeah. Yeah. Talk about your story of becoming a Christian. My understanding is that you were not raised Christian. And so you, you didn't grow up like so many of our listeners and myself 
steeped in this ecosystem of Christian music and other kinds of Christian art. Actually, I was raised Christian. Oh, okay. So my dad was a missionary. And the reason I met my wife was because her parents were missionaries. So we were actually both raised in the church. My dad was a writer for Interlink, which was this kind of massive youth group. I don't even know what to call it. They they were a company out of Nashville that would send boxes of Christian music to youth leaders that also contained like a, a, a book of Bible studies. My dad was one of the writers. So I actually did grow up. So you're like steeped. You're parallel. You are parallel institution evangelical royalty. <laughs> yeah, perhaps. Yeah. <laughs> that's, wow, that's a crazy sentence. Um, but I, I, you know, as I became a critical thinker, probably 16, 17, 18, I just realized that I didn't believe anything that I'd been told. Okay. My, my foundation of belief was super flimsy. So I think in that way, I can prob- probably relate to a lot of people who are raised Christians. And then just kind of asked the questions for myself, read books, you know, experimented and eventually decided I believed in a higher power. And then maybe because I was raised in a Christian home, found my way to the Judeo Christian God, but decided I didn't believe in Jesus. Okay. And then maybe around 2021, my dad gave me this book called, can the real Jesus still be found? And I don't remember the book being especially, especially good, but I read it, and by the time I was finished with it, for whatever reason, some you know mystical thing had happened in my heart, and I decided maybe Jesus was who he said he was, and then experienced no change in my life, which was very distressing. Hmm. And this is when I'm you know beginning to tour and kind of uh, exist in a very toxic environment, and and so it sometimes when I talk about my my story of becoming a Christian, it just feels like it took a really long time. It wasn't until 2013. Or 2012, we were on tour with Portugal, the man, and I just kind of hit rock bottom as a person. Came home from that tour specifically, just for the first time in my life, realizing I needed God. So it was like there was this huge difference suddenly between believing in God and and then actually feeling like I needed what God had to offer. Hmm. And so I basically started praying differently and praying, you know, Lord, okay, I I do believe in you. And now I feel like I actually need you. So, you know, would you please just do whatever you want to do in my life? And that's actually when I'd say I became a Christian, Hmm. because I think there is a difference, at least in my life, there was a difference on an experiential level. There was a difference between acknowledging God's existence and actually wanting to be in relationship with God and actually surrender to what God's will would be for my life. And yeah, I very quickly after that got baptized, and that's kind of how I became a Christian. Yeah, a lot of possible threads to pick up there. Um, <laughs> no, I mean, well, partly because our experience is so similar in a lot of ways. I also started touring around 2021, 20, years of age, but I wouldn't have described my environment as toxic. Mm. And uh, I, I'm just kind of curious, like, uh, why you described yours that way. I'm wondering if I could pick apart what the differences were. Well, toxic in different ways. Toxic for me as an individual because it appealed to the the selfish ambition in me, the kind of narcissistic tendency, you know, that most lead singers and songwriters would struggle with. No and, comment. Know, <laughs> yeah. And <laughs> he's probably I mean, not listening, but no comment just to be safe. <laughs> Cuz I wasn't <laughs> I was not the singer. Yeah. No, oh, I see. Yeah. <laughs> well, uh, <laughs> uh, no, Nate, Nate, I'm, I'm joking. Nate and I have uh, an understanding around. I, I have plenty. I think together we equaled one traditional narcissistic lead singer, there song, you go. whatever. Like we, we, I brought plenty as the writer, and he brought plenty as the <laughs> vocalist. And you put them together, you get, you get one Bono or whatever. Oh. You know, you're, you're like Charlie from Lo- Charlie and his brother from Lost. <laughs> right. Right. So there was that, the part of it that was unhealthy for me as a person, like actually my personhood, like I I was just selfish and egotistical and very ambitious. And then, then toxic because I was surrounded by all the things that I was struggling with, you know, like whether it was drugs or alcohol, whether it was women or, you know, you can just kind of name all of the 
the stereotypical rock band vices. I was just around all of those things all the time. And so that those things combined created a toxic environment for me. But, you know, I should say, because I'm being recorded and this is a, you know, an actual live show. I, the people I toured with were really great. Yeah. And were kind and they looked out for me. So the trouble I got myself into is just that I got myself into it. And that doesn't mean we didn't get into trouble together sometimes. But sure. really it was yeah. my fault. Well, maybe. Um, <laughs> not calling you a liar or anything, but, you know, uh, setting matters. Mm-hmm. Um, and our, our decisions are somewhat our own, but our, our free will is quite constrained by all kinds of factors, I believe. Um, yeah. Not to belabor it, and we don't need to continue down this road, but I just think it's interesting – being in a band with four other Christians, even though we were not on a Christian label, we didn't play churches. We didn't play, you know, we played like one and a half Christian festivals ever. Oh, I guess two and a half. What was that half? Can you Uh, give me the the elevator pitch? Purple Door in Pennsylvania, which is Christian, but like very indie and would have non-Christian bands as well. Uh, I guess I was hoping that you guys got, your set got cut off (laughs) mid-set. We got half a set at, at, uh, at, um, you know, spirit festival or whatever. No. Yes. We, we played a small one called freedom fest in Washington and we played cornerstone once and we played purple door once, but we were, the joke with us was we were like a, a band of dads compared to all the other bands, hmm. even though we weren't older necessarily, but like we all went to college. We didn't party hard and none of us were sleeping around. So there wasn't a layer of protection there that I am now like super grateful for. Uh, <laughs> And I was the, you know, I was the middle in age and two of our band members were a couple years older than me. And anyway, that's whatever. We don't have to go there. I just think it's it's interesting to note those kind of differences. Well, it's not the same for everybody, right? Yeah, I wasn't, um, nobody in our, on our team were Christians, so. Yeah. And it does, those things make a difference. I mean, statistically they do, you know, they're likely mm-hmm. to, you, I'm sure you can find outliers, but that stuff does matter. So I want to ask about how you viewed Christian music. Uh, yeah. Let's let's call it in that interstitial period between a teenager and kind of recommitting or recontextualizing, refiguring it out and actually becoming a Christian later in your 20s. Yeah. How did you think of it then? Well, by the time I was 14, I discovered secular music, you know, art in general. I loved film and books and visual art. But when it came to music, I... By the time I was a middle schooler, I was listening to, you know, 98% of what I was listening to was secular music. And it just became really clear to me that it, that I thought, I just felt like it was better. It was more inspired. They took more risks. It was more interesting. Christian music suddenly felt really myopic and boring. And there's still some of it, actually, some older CCM music I like now that I actually do think was pretty interesting and creative. But in general, an example or two, just so we kind of sure what what you mean. I mean, there are the kind of the obvious choices of some of the earlier, like Tooth and Nail bands, Starflyer Fifty Nine, MXPX, Danielson, but also even some of the bigger bands. I I think earlier Newsboys is actually quite weird. I think I I still have a huge soft spot for the early Switchfoot records. Um, Yeah. So and I I I also really like Reliant K's. uh, What is it? The two lefts don't make a right, but. Mm-hmm. Three do or something like that. Yeah. But I, you know, as soon as I discovered, I don't know, Radiohead right. <laughs> as an example, yeah, I just felt it inspired me and Christian music didn't. And I became very critical of Christian music and I felt better than Christian artists, even though I was a spiritually sensitive songwriter who was kind of even when I wasn't a Christian, still writing about spiritual things, I kind of saw myself in the secular world. And I mean, it's really outrageous when I think about it now, but I remember playing shows with Christian bands and like kind of laughing like, oh my gosh, it's so bad. But I was happy to play to their fans. I don't know. It was just super, I, I, I don't know. I'm not really proud of that, that perspective, but I was very critical of Christian art. Yeah. Now that like Pure Flix exists and mm-hmm. there is like a, a significant number of Christian films out there, you could imagine like an aspiring little filmmaker, Christian teenager who's 
parents don't let him watch Netflix, but he can watch pure flicks. And then, you know, turns 18, goes to college and discovers like Terrence Malick and Mm -hmm. just like, and just is like, what? There are like actual films about faith that are good films. That kind of a disconnect. That would be sort of like the, the worst slash best case scenario or the, the, the largest gap between, you know, experience of, of art forms. Yeah. Well, it's interesting you mentioned film because I would say, and and I'm not trying to sound grumpy or I, I don't know how I'm trying to sound. I'm just trying to be honest, but I think Christian film and Christian visual art, also Christian fiction is some of the worst art created right now. I I have to be careful with my words because I don't, I don't really know how to feel about it. I just know that I really like film and that the few Christian films I've seen, I find to be very bad on every, in every aspect of the editing, the cinematography, the screenwriting, the acting, the directing, the score, the sound design. Like literally I can think of every little piece of filmmaking that I love. And so it's, it's cool that you right. bring that up because I can't imagine what it would be like to want to be a filmmaker. You're growing up in the church right now, 2020. And your really your only access to film is, you know, VidAngel, and you're watching Fireproof. And I'm, I'm just trying to think of Christian. I, I don't know that many, but you know, those t- kind of like Dove yeah. Award God's not films, dead. right? God's not dead, exactly. And the trilogy. <laughs> and right. meanwhile, you could be watching Martin Scorsese's Silence, or you could be watching Shawshank Redemption, or name hundred movies that I have, I think are spiritually true. So I have one idea about this. I wonder what you think. Okay. Um, I've been kind of kicking this around a little bit uh, with the help of a, a few friends. I think there's something about maybe it's need for closure, something about tidiness, something about the relief of anxiety and the relief of ambiguity and uncertainty in these films mm-hmm. uh, or other f- sources of Christian fiction mm-hmm. where that is a pa- has a paralyzing effect on a piece of art. Absolutely. That a good piece of art is necessarily open to at least some various interpretations, at least uh, matches the messiness of the world to some degree. And so you can have, for instance, a character with conviction. Uh, in, in my recent conversation Around the Christian film industry, I mentioned the Thin Red Line and the Jim Caviezel character in the Thin Red Line very much has Christian conviction, acts out of that conviction, is a self-sacrificial character who's praying to God throughout the film. You can present that, but he's in tension with other characters who don't and who swear because they're in a war (laughs) where people swear like Mm -hmm. and they're killing people. And there, there is like. Because you know, it's a war film. So there's a way to do it that like, oh, there's still plenty of ambiguity in the thin red line. You you kind of know what Malik, the director's perspective is. You get a sense for that. Mm-hmm. But, you know, he's still making it good art, broadly speaking. Um, yeah. But that would not that's not a comfortable experience for uh, and that that's sort of unrelated to like the PG, PG-13, the rating, like course language. I don't want to, you know, that's kind of a different question. This is about kind of a, an interior thing of how much ambiguity can I sit with, with my art that I'm consuming? Yeah. I've actually thought about that a lot. And Christians who are making art for other Christians feel an obligation to leave those Christians with a good word, to leave them in a good place. And that's just not real life. It's just not real life because, and, and what I mean when I say that is I might have a bad day. There's a good chance this week I'll have a bad day. And there's an even better chance I actually go to sleep still feeling the the sadness or the emptiness that I felt throughout the day. And it might not be till the next morning that I kind of reconnect with my creator. But if a work of art is always insistent on, like as you said, kind of wrapping things up with a nice bow – it just feels untrue to me. It feels, it doesn't cut to my heart the same way. And so I, I don't know. I... So here's a tension though for me, and let's, let's move it into music here. Art is one thing, but art, like a, a piece of art, 
So I made a film that I want to get people to think, or I, I just made the best film I could make, is different than, for instance, I am writing a song to be sung at the end of a church service. Of course. Now, that's also artistic. Obviously, it's a creative process. It's poetry and melody and whatever. I don't think I would not say that the Sunday morning service experience must match the real world and <laughs> end in ambiguity. Like, sure. I think that it would it's actually great for people to leave church on Sunday morning with a sense of hope, with a good word. Uh, a benediction. A, a benediction, a, like you know, God's blessing over your week, a reminder of God's goodness, you know, like, and that's artistic. And so it's interesting. It's, it's, that brings some tension for me. Mm -hmm. I mean, I, I work at a church. I write, I've written a couple of benedictions in the last six months and I, the worship service is, you know, we have a very specific goal right? to lead our congregation into true worship, into spirit in spirit and in truth. And I do think you can worship while watching a Terrence Malick movie yeah. that ends in ambiguity. Sure. But, but that's not, I don't think that's exactly why Terrence Malick is making his film, like you said. And so right. I think you do make a good point. And, you know, especially within the church, there is a lot of art. There's a lot of music that is created with a, a specific purpose. It has a utility. And maybe it is specifically to help somebody. I don't know. I mean, maybe it's just a simple liturgy or maybe it's devotional in nature. But those, you know, my second record, the one that you mentioned that you don't quite love. Well, no, I just, I'm not as familiar with it because Fair enough. I'm, I'm frankly, it's, it's a praise record lyrically. And I am, I just am not in a place where I am often wanting to hear that right now. Mm -hmm. uh, I will say my friends who do consume that music, who I really respect musically, love it. Mm -hmm. So oh, if you are a listener and you're like, I would like more records, like like artistically <laughs> viable records with with worshipful lyrics, like I highly recommend it to you, oh listener. I'm I haven't been in that space as much yeah. recently. Uh, well, and the other two, so the other two are more my my style at the moment. That and that makes sense. I've been there many times. I but I bring that record up because I did create it as a devotional piece of art. Yeah, it is. It's there a was a specific right. nature. Like I, but they were stemming from my own personal devotions. And so sure. a lot of the, the lyrics would fit in a worship service, but there are also some moments that don't wrap up Yeah, where I just am kind of angry with God or I am mm -hmm. confused. And even sonically, there are some, there's, there are some musical choices on that record that are specifically supposed to kind of imitate the reality of life where at the end of this worship song, now we're going to have some dissonance because mm -hmm. I often leave the worship service and I step out into a dissonant world. Yeah. So, interesting. But you're right. There's a tension there, especially for those of us who are creating work that is consumed by a congregation. Um, yeah. I, I guess I wonder, like, maybe I should just think of these Christian films as like, Sunday morning worship and they're, they're just not trying to compete with films. You know, I think you're right. I don't know. Maybe. I think, I think you're right. I think they're devotional most of the time. Right. They're trying They're they're, I'm sure that the writer, the, the screenwriter was sitting with their partner thinking, how can we encourage this group of people? Towards uh, well, Christ? no, now I don't agree anymore. Cause I actually think a lot of the people making these films are totally just getting a paycheck. Yeah. <laughs> Oh, yeah. I think there I think I think there's a ton of cynicism in the actual production of it, which so that might be its own issue. But anyway, I, I, I do want to get I want to spend our remaining time more on on Christian music. Yeah. Um, you used a phrase when we were chatting earlier of you sometimes feel like a Christian thought terrorist. First of <laughs> yeah. all, I need you to explicate what you mean by that term. Thought terrorism. I mean, I'm going to use Google real quick because I'm trying to remember. I love sci-fi and I terrorist thought terrorism is like a established sci-fi term. Well, yeah, I want to say that there was a, whether it's like George Orwell or yeah, you know, somebody Huxley it. or somebody used yeah. thought terrorism as a kind of, but kind so of you like, mean a, like rising people from their sleep, shaking them by the collar. Well, thought, thought terrorism. No, I, I think it's, it would be a, a that kind of sounds like 
makes it sound like it's a good thing. When oh. I say I feel like a thought terrorist, what oh, I mean is okay. I yeah. say things that that some would consider as like actual intellectual sabotage or like mm. the fact that I don't say the Pledge of Allegiance. I mm. don't and I won't. And I won't teach my son to, to say the Pledge of Allegiance because I don't feel good teaching my son to pledge his allegiance to anything big and reckless like our country. Now, mm. that I think places me firmly into this kind of made up zone that I would call thought terrorism. But within the church, it's this idea that I often feel like what I do as an artist, as a musician, as a songwriter, it, it almost feels there's like an anarchist spirit about it. And I don't mean that literally. I just mean there's something about it that feels disruptive for certain types of people who have only consumed certain types of Christian music. And so I guess here's an example. At a live show, I might play a song where I'm talking about how much I love Jesus, because I do. But I also might follow it up with a song where I'm singing about how I'm suicidal. I do that because that's who I am. That's what my life looks like. But to some people, that it's almost a form of spiritual terrorism. Does that make sense? Like I'm, I'm yeah. out to destroy what they have built around themselves. Well, it's the opposite of that tidy, uh, you know, tidy conclusion that we've been talking about. Right. You're, you're doing the opposite. But my question for you about that is earlier in our conversation, you were talking about how when you are unhealthy, you get this kind of like disruptive spirit that you actually think is not useful. And I, so yes. I'm wondering, you know, what's the tension there? Like it, it, do you mm -hmm. see yourself being that way and you like it? Do you not like it? There's, there's, I think there's a, there's a healthy aspect and an unhealthy aspect because there are times when I, where I sense the Holy Spirit's presence and all I want to do is make noise. And I'm leaving literal noise music. Like I want to put you all my do, fuzz. Yeah. Metal machine music, Lou Reed, you know, just, just exactly. make our ears no, bleed. Yeah. Precisely. I want to flip over tables the way Jesus flipped over tables. I want to, I want to buy a copy of God's not dead and smash it over my knee. Now there's also As a, a piece of performance art, right? Perhaps. Yeah. So there's, but there's this part of me that sees that there's a selfishness there as well. There's a, a desire to be different, to be an outsider. You know, I'm a four on the Enneagram whatever. And I think an, I'm an, I want to be an individual. So I just think there's an actual tension there at all times. But I had this experience once where I was driving home from Seattle and I sensed God's presence with me in a way that only I can understand and I can't explain with words. Mm -hmm. And I had my phone and I was like, Lord, do you want to be my DJ? This is a weird thing to ask you. I don't know if you're even into it. Like if I press shuffle, do you just want to pick the songs? And this is like me, like believing in faith. Like if, if God wants to, he'll do it. Mm -hmm. And I swear there was like 40 minutes of noise, like noise music, just the most in my face sound and anger and not just like, not like anger in a bad way, like righteous anger and heavy music and drums that, that were like where the recording techniques are lo-fi and the drummer kind of sucks and, you know, moments where it's out of tempo and like everything I love about art, it was almost like, and I, it could have been coincidental. I will acknowledge this. Sure. Yeah. But in that moment, I almost felt like God was saying like, Hey, I've kind of made you who you are for a reason. And like, you know, that feeling you get when you want to flip over the tables, like I did that. And I also want to flip over tables and like, you know, that feeling when you're frustrated because you hear like you turn on the Christian radio and everything is so pristine and it feels like it feels robotic. That kind of bugs me too. And I'm not trying to speak for the Lord. What I'm trying to say is I, I guess sometimes my desire to disrupt feels, it actually feels like led by the Holy Spirit. And sometimes it's just because I'm a wannabe punk, you know? And so, you know, part three, I am origami part three. I purposely put that record directly after the after the worship record for a reason because I wanted to show that you can sing songs about how good God is and then with your next release sing songs about depression and anxiety 
and still be a like honor God honoring and still be led by the spirit. And that record part three doesn't end on a good note. It, it literally ends on one of the most depressing songs I've ever written in my life. And I had a youth pastor friend tell me he thought I should, I should have my testimony at the end of that record to kind of like help conclude it in a, in a good way. And I just, and his heart was good, but I basically said, no, that that's literally the definition of a bait and switch. That's what turned me off from Christianity. And, and when I was younger, it, because right. I, I don't always feel good and I got to believe that God is there with me when I'm not feeling good, but God's not necess- necessarily saying, John, snap out of it, dude. Like you're such a, you know, you're not near me when you're depressed. Cause that's just the exact opposite is true. And so I don't even know where I, where I'm going with that, but I just, I feel really strongly, feel really strongly about that. <laughs> well, I'll tell you what it makes me think of. It makes me think of my friend, Danielle Mayfield. Uh, she's known as DL Mayfield in her writing and she lives in Portland and she is kind of a, she's a thorn in the side of a certain kind of American Christianity. I would say, I think she'd be quite comfortable with that Mm -hmm. um, designation. We actually end up, we end up differing a lot on our approach and, and what we think, uh, even though our core values, I think are almost identical, but she, there, uh, there's a viral photo of her that it went viral and I think she ended up doing some kind of New York Times piece or something about it. But she went to that Sean Fuked, I don't know how to spell his last name, but he did a a protest worship service in Portland, unmasked. And she just held up a sign that said, away with your noisy hymns of praise. I will not listen to the music of your harps. Instead, I want to see a flood of justice, an endless river of righteous living. Amos 5, 23 to 24. Good verse. And great. Yeah, great verse. And she just held that up and she got yelled at by these, you know, ma- anti-mask evangelicals and stuff. But she just stood there with like the scripture and did a prophetic kind of a thing. I I know that Danielle's heart is pure. Uh, I can't speak to, you know, what you've been kind of talking about, which is like, I don't know when for any particular individual that veers into unhealthy personal territory sure. uh, where you are making yourself a martyr or, you know, whatever you kind of, I'm not putting words in either of your mouth, but that's what it reminds me of is sort of the prophetic tradition within Judaism and Christianity. The thing about prophets is uh, they tend to not be super popular. Right. Um, I don't have you... <laughs> Uh, sometimes they lose their church jobs. I mean, I don't, you know, I'm, I'm not saying you ought to be worried about that, but I'm, I'm curious what you think about sort of the, those often natural costs that are paid for people in that position. I've thought about that a little bit. I think for me, the challenge is determining what, what I'm producing, whether or not it's prophetic or whether or not it's, as we've discussed, selfish, but, um, you know, I recently wrote a song called It's Time to Let America Die, hmm. and I haven't published it. And I think it's probably one of the better songs I've written. But I will admit I'm feeling a sense of caution about it because I think so many Christians will take it the wrong way. And and yet I do wonder if there will be a point in which I feel this strong push to release it. That's what I felt when I was going to release Every Power Wide Awake. I was actually very afraid to release part two. And I felt this almost like I needed to vomit. I needed to get it out. And the first day on Bandcamp, all the proceeds went to the Trevor Project, which is a nonprofit that supports LGBTQ youth who are Mm. struggling with depression and suicide. And I remember thinking even in, in that choice, there were probably people who wouldn't by my record, Christians, just because I chose to put my money there. And I should yeah, say but, put their I mean, money there. F- that dude. I mean, well, I that, agree. That's but what just I'm... following your, I mean, you gotta do that if that's what God's calling you to do, you know? Sure. Yeah. Yeah. But I do think that was, that was an example of kind of feeling on edge about following God's voice, God's call or tug or whatever you want to call it but in a way that felt countercultural, And I think I'm headed more in that direction. And I just sometimes wonder if the closer I get to Jesus, the more 
countercultural I become and the more extreme my music becomes. And hmm. so I do think about that. Um, well, so what's most interesting to me about that, not to cut you off, is that I think that you are – I made this joke in our text conversation earlier of like those old go against the flow, Christian fish is swimming one way mm-hmm. and all that. Like you're actually the – you're the Christian fish swimming the opposite way as all the other Christian fish. <laughs> so like uh, I think what's more common is to be one of two things. It's either like, OK, I am – and so people – either people go full – they go full on and they uh, they end up catering to their Christian audience. I'm not going to say that they do that duplicitously. I'm sure some of them do and some of them genuinely like that stuff too. Right. Or they say, I am a Christian artist with integrity. Therefore, I can't make Christian art right. because I would no longer have integrity. Uh, and then I think there's also a, a shadow version of that, which is like, I actually just my ego won't let me be maligned for my Christian art. So I won't make it because I wouldn't be able to hand the crit- handle the criticism. Right. So there's that, too. So there's good and bad versions of both. You're charting this middle way that I think is increasingly rare. And I think that especially as cultural polarization continues in America between the sort of, you know, Republican, evangelical white subculture, and then everybody else on the other side, it's even more and more rare. So you're, I mean, how would you even in your own words, describe this sort of third way that you would like to do? Because I, I just, I find it fascinating. So I'm trying to think of how to answer that question because you're talking about something that's really important to me. Well, you can answer any part of it. You don't have to well, take that prompt. When I was writing for The Lonely Forest, I was always afraid we'd get pegged as a Christian band. Mm-hmm. Yeah, we were always you afraid know. of that too in Sherwood. Right. And so we said no to tours with Christian bands. We said, we said no. And I knew others who were believers who, for similar reasons, wouldn't sing about what what they were going through spiritually. And if they did, it was very cryptic. Mm-hmm. Which is why if you go back and listen to some of the Lonely Forest records, you can hear, you can kind of chart my course as a like Christian, like becoming a Christian. As I began to write songs about my faith, and as I began to consider releasing them, what I realized and the feedback I got from secular and Christian thinkers alike was like, you can't do both. John, like publicists saying like, Hey, I get the secular stuff. I think it's great. But this worship record is, if that's what you're calling it, it's a bad idea. It's a bad idea. I don't understand why you would do that to your listeners. And then the Christian thinkers within the industry saying basically the same thing. Like, why would you even bother, you know, singing about smoking a joint or taking your own life or miscarriage or like name 12 other things that I'm trying to sing about on those records. Why would you bother with that? It's so depressing. And frankly, it just pissed me off because I don't know a Christian. I literally don't know a follower of Christ who doesn't struggle and who doesn't, who isn't, you know, facing some form of anxiety or depression or doubt, or they, they might not show it because they're unwilling to face it. But I, I just don't think those people exist. And so what I've thought about more and more is I actually think what the Christian world needs and the secular world needs are Christians who are not ashamed of being Christians, but who make good art. And in order to make good art, they are studying others who have made good art. And that means listening to bands like the Beach Boys and the Beatles and Radiohead or, you know, Carl Blau or Mount Airy or The Blow or name like a hundred thousand artists who have like all broken the rules and have done something interesting and le- and left an artistic legacy because I don't find those artists in the Christian world. I, there are some, I have friends who I think are making some of the most interesting art on the planet. My friend, John, who goes by half handed cloud. Mm-hmm. He loves the Lord and his music is far out. It is well, super weird. Yes. Yeah, it is. And it's fantastic. Nobody's he's doing, made, he's obviously doing what he wants to do. Yeah, well, nobody's made music like him. And so, but it's the same with film. I feel this with film and and fiction all the time, not to bring it back to film, but I'm desperate, like literally desperate for somebody 
to make a movie <laughs> that's as good as the the latest Greta Gerwig movie, mm-hmm. but that is just like honest, explicitly about Jesus. Now, that doesn't mean like it needs to be like we were talking about devotional in nature. I just mean maybe like a Terrence Malick movie, but just there's a true spirituality to it. But the director is like, yeah, I'm a Christian director. I mean, his next film, you know, is about Jesus and Peter. Right. Which So just get ready for that. <laughs> I still it's haven't coming. seen Tree of Life. You haven't but seen I, Tree of Life, John? No, no. My friend, one of my best friends told me he wept watching it. And I, so I need to watch it. I, I have a love-hate relationship with Terrence Malick. Okay. Well, that's fine. But, but I, I will see it eventually. But what I'm trying to say is, yeah. but I, I feel energized by living in the middle world. Like, yeah, I'm yeah. about to finish a, a, a record of hymns and worship that includes heart of worship on it. And I chose that song because like, this is a fabulous song that no self-respecting artist would like claim like nobody I know would cover it. And I'm thinking this song is fantastic. Why can't I make it interesting? And what I mean is interesting, not like the songwriting itself. I mean the production like, Mm -hmm. and so I put it on my record and I love it. And it's got fuzz and arpeggiating synths and all the things I want. And, and I'm excited to, to put that out into the world and then follow it up with a punk record or whatever it is I'm feeling like I want to do in that moment. I honestly just think that if more Christians would step into that zone, I just think there's a potency to being that honest, honest about everything, honest about the good, the bad, and the ugly while you make music. I mean, I think you're, I think you're sort of obviously right. Um, <laughs> I mean, not, I don't mean to say like, you're not saying anything interesting. I, I mean, I think you're just like definitely right. But there is a real economic issue there and that it's very hard to make a living doing that. And that's why you have another job. Well, agreed. And this is why I love the idea of pastors being bivocational and making their money elsewhere or working part time. And friends of mine who have been willing to do that for long stretches. I'm thinking of my uh, my old next door neighbor who's a Calvary Chapel pastor. Mm -hmm. Today it is his full time job. But for like a decade or more, he had multiple, uh, you know, other part-time gigs. And that's how I know he's serious about it. <laughs> yeah. You know, like that he was willing to do that for years and years and years. And he's open to it, you know, if he if he's not supposed to do that anymore. You know, he's, that's what I would want people in ministry to be doing. But it there's a real built-in conflict there with sort of monetary realities. Yeah. And that's complicated for people. It is. It is complicated. And I, I think one thing we've left out is that I actually want to give the benefit of the doubt to a lot of Christian artists. I do think most Christian songwriters and artists are just, they're just doing what they know and what they like. Yeah. You know, they're, they're making a worship record that sounds like the worship record they enjoy, which is that Bethel record that, that sounds pristine and beautiful and the production's incredible. Like they're just trying to reproduce that. And probably for the glory of God. They're thinking like, this is what will reach more people. And I don't think there's anything wrong with that. I just, a side note, I had a phone call with a friend two days ago who's in the, who's been in the Bethel world of music. And before he moved to, to Reading, he was making these weird bedroom records where he played saxophone. There was like yeah. long instrumentals. And, and he was telling me how John, I kind of want to make a country record and, and I kind of want to make a pop record. And I was like, Taylor, you please make that record. And he's like, well, and I could tell there was this hesitancy in him. And I just, I guess what it sounds so obvious. I just, I want now I'm going to start ranting. I'm trying not to rant. <laughs> I want like, I want to know what happens when Chris Tomlin takes some artistic risk. Mm-hmm. I want to see someone with that much talent, like, dig through a thrift store record bin bin and like buy 10 random records and, and make a record that doesn't sound perfect. That's what I want. I want that from him. And I want him to write songs about the fight he had with his wife. And I want to know how good it's going to be because that dude is prodigiously talented. And if you think he isn't, you're crazy. He just has always done one thing. And it's like, I want the Matt. What, what's his name? Redman, Matt Redman. 
I want the Matt Redmonds of the world to just like get weird <laughs> really badly. Anyways, sorry. Well, you're going to be the change you want to see in the world. It sounds like John, you already are. So I'm grateful for that. Um, thank you so much for your time, man. I recommend uh, I'll have a link to uh, the albums on Spotify, but of course you can find them anywhere else. Uh, it's John Van Dusen, D-E-U-S-E-N or D-U-E. You got it. D-E-U-S-E-N. Yeah. Okay. Can um, I plug? Great. Yes. Can I plug my, whatever. Punk, my punk band, Buffet? B-U-F-F-E-T? Yep. Our record is, we had one record. We recorded it in three hours. It's called All American. <laughs> okay, great. So yeah. we'll have, people can check that out as well. Thanks, man. Thank you. course this show has a patreon campaign if you'd like to support it financially you can do that you can go to patreon.com slash dan coke there's a link in the show notes patrons get at least two exclusive episodes per month as well as access to the patron only facebook group which is just a gem and a joy Uh, and i just i love it i love being a part of that group i love the people in there um so There are those links in the show notes, as I mentioned, with John. I also am adding a link to his very good live at KEXP session. These are these super quality live in-studio recordings and videos from uh, quite an influential radio station here in Seattle. And I also wanted to get one song clip from each album. So at the end of this song, Whatever Makes You Mine, which is from the most recent record, Uh, I'm going to put a clip from a song from uh, his second record, Every Power Wide Awake. And then in the notes, I will have a a link to the album and then also the name of the song that played on this episode in case you want to look that song up specifically. I think that's it. Uh, We'll see you guys next week. And I believe the episode will be Jim Wellman, um, the researcher from the University of Washington in defense of megachurches. So, uh, get your hackles up, ready to go, (laughs) your defenses ready uh, to hear some stuff that many of you will not want to hear, but I think it's good to acknowledge. Uh, I'm really excited. I loved that conversation. I'm excited for you guys to hear it. And thanks again to John and Josh Gilbert, my editor and uh, producer. See you guys later.
'Cause I can't. 